You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. I received a piece of work from the desk of Philip Saunders, who's co-head of multi-asset growth at 91 in London. And the headline is The Chinese Punchbowl and the Last Dance. And if you'll indulge me, I'll speak about the first couple of sentences. It says here, William Martin, the then chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, commented in a speech to the New York Bankers Association in October 1955 that and this is in speech marks now, the Federal Reserve is in the position of the chaperone who has ordered the punch bowl removed just when the party was really warming up. The fact that the Fed, after their recent FOMC meeting, as we come forward to 2021, were now actually thinking about removing emergency monetary accommodation rather than not even thinking about thinking about raising rates, and that was the 10th of June 2020, that quote was taken from, came as an unwelcome surprise to markets and also as a reminder that the Fed still took its role as chaperone seriously. Yeah, that sets the tone for the rest of the piece. With me now is Philip Saunders, the aforementioned Philip Saunders. What prompted this, Philip? Well, Lindsay, I think that we, you know, obviously at the moment, uh, the inflation narrative has been very dominant. And that has now been with us for really pretty much most of this year. And essentially, one of the sort of key bits of the logic is that, uh, you know, the Fed has fundamentally changed its approach um, and is going to allow the economy to run hot um, and is going to play fast and loose with its inflation target. And you've got a school of thought that believes that, um, you know, the Fed basically believes that the current inflation pressures are transitory and, you know, uh, could well be proved wrong. Um, and then you've got obviously the, uh, the usual inflation Easters who were sort of, uh, rampant after the global financial crisis and of course totally wrong about, um, you know, the course of inflation after the, uh, if you like, the bailout of the banks and, you know, the introduction of QE then. So I think that, um, um, really what we've noticed is that, uh, you know, we're in a liquidity driven bull market. Um, and uh, the optimists would say that, uh, fine, it's been a liquidity-driven bull market uh, in just about anything except for conventional bonds, um, but it's fine because now uh, we've got COVID more or less under control and we can see light at the end of that particular tunnel and we're going to see normalisation, etc. We're going to enjoy a long period of economic growth and it's going to be all about fundamentals and not about liquidity. Okay. Uh, and that, I believe, is wishful thinking because valuations have been pushed up in most things to extremely uh, high levels. I, if you look at forward, the likely returns looking forwards over the next 10 years, uh, they are pretty lean under anything but uh, extremely optimistic scenarios. So we happen to think liquidity matters a lot. You know, we're in this highly financialized uh, world and uh, where financial markets basically have become substantially detached from underlying fundamentals in many respects. Yes. So liquidity really matters. And everybody obviously looks at the Fed because that's what they're used to doing. And uh, they seem to completely ignore what the People's Bank of China is doing, uh, which we think is interesting and important um, and fairly disturbing if you buy the thesis that liquidity at the changes in liquidity conditions at the margin in a market like this 
are likely to have quite a significant impact. Well, this is very interesting because you say liquidity is important. And while there is liquidity, then, of course, every, everyone's happy. All asset classes or risky asset classes uh, continue to either surge or, or grind higher or at best or at worst, rather, go flat. So that's, that's fine. But what's happened in the last couple of weeks is something that I don't quite understand. I saw the US 10-year Treasury yield go to 1.75%. And yesterday, I think it was, and when I say yesterday, I mean in the middle of this week, went down to very close to 1.25%. Now, 50 basis points, half a percent doesn't sound like much, but in a market like that, which is probably the most liquid market in the world, or in the developed world anyway, it's absolutely enormous. I can't imagine the amount of money that was thrown at a market to take it from 1.75 to 1.25. And you'll have to explain to me about what the Fed has done, because it seems to be draining liquidity via reverse repos. No, I think that it's not really that so much as how investors are positioned. So we talked about the inflation narrative being rampant and rather mature. And so people have sort of now got that sort of, you know, inflation is coming bit between their teeth. And, you know, who knows over the longer term, maybe it will, maybe it won't. Um, but, you know, inflation tends to take quite a long time to incubate at any rate. So I think there's a conflation good word, uh, of uh, short-term inflation pressures, which are manifest because of supply chain disruption and, uh, um, and sort of uh, hoarding and God knows what, um, and longer-term risks. So we end up with this sort of inflation hysteria, if you like. So what would be the most painful thing to happen for investors in those circumstances? I investors who basically ditched any um, any bonds. Um, I'm not talking about credit. I'm talking about government bonds uh, on valuation grounds and on inflation grounds. Uh, and it's basically treasuries rallying. Uh, and, you know, obviously the dollar rallying is also pretty painful to the sort of current consensus. So this, I think, is just part of the normal ebb and flow of markets. Uh, and, you know, that you buy into a narrative uh, and then <laughs> assets do exactly the opposite. Uh, and then you're sort of surprised and your positions are squeezed and you see sort of extraordinary and, uh, and rather ir apparently irrational behavior, whereas it's just positioning shifts. OK, you mentioned the People's Bank of China and you also mentioned our fixation with the US Federal Reserve. I'll quote a sentence from your piece. While market participants remain fixated on what the Fed might do, and more importantly, when, China's central bankers have already moved decisively to take away their equivalent of William Martin's punch bowl and are clearly focused on stabilizing the country's overall debt levels, which remain uncomfortably high. Philip, it does seem to me that you as an investor and me as a broadcaster have become sort of slightly prepossessed with what the US Federal Reserve is doing, which is quite right, I suppose, in a way, because of the fact that it is the world's largest central bank of the world's largest economy. But things going on elsewhere as well, for example, with the People's Bank of China. Yes. And I think that this is just a sort of natural behavioral error in markets, because we still haven't sort of entirely in the West, we still haven't entirely got uh, our head around the fact that we're moving into a more multipolar world. China has now you know, actually the size of the economy, China's economy, has doubled since the taper tantrum of 2012. Um, and so therefore, it's even more important as a proportion of global demand. And it means that what happens to growth in China, you know, has a very significant impact on its immediate neighbors and more broadly. So what's going on in China is that uh, 
they did stimulate, but to nothing like the same extent as uh, happened in the West, because they didn't need to, because yes. they got COVID under control mm. quicker in an authoritarian way, but an effective way. And their economy basically sort of had a bit of a downturn, but it wasn't uh, as serious as the downturns that we've experienced. Now, pan forwards, um, they basically recognize that they do have a capital productivity problem. Um, and uh, and so therefore, this time around, they have basically started to sort of slow the expansion of credit. So credit is still sort of going up, but basically uh, the speed with which it's increasing has, you know, slowed down very significantly. Now, if we go back and look at the previous cycle, we had um, it was punctuated by three mini cycles. Um, and we saw, you know, basically sort of quite significant corrections in growth assets in when China actually tightened credit conditions. And then basically when they eased again, then basically growth rebounded and markets rebounded in anticipation of that eventually. And so it had a very marked influence on, you know, how different asset classes behaved. We believe that that continues to apply. And so, therefore, the fact that they've materially altered their credit stance, you know, will slow growth in China looking forward to over nine to 12 months. Uh, and that then basically will undermine quite a lot of the reflation trades that we're seeing sort of that, that have been sort of leading the charge really since the sort of Biden, the U.S. presidential election back in the autumn of last year. This is a very important couple of sentences I'm going to read to you now from your piece or the draft of what will be a much more substantial piece, I think. It says, or you say rather, at the very least, liquidity tailwinds are in the process of shifting to become headwinds. And the key judgment to be made is the extent to which these changes in liquidity conditions at the margin will impact markets, despite avowedly much better fundamentals. In a heavily financialized system, we would argue that this could be material and all the more so given that valuations are high across the board, indicating that the recovery is in the price. In other words, the S&P 500 at all time record highs just a couple of days ago has uh, fully discounted the fact that, well, I think incorrectly that the pandemic or the global health crisis, as I prefer to call it, is under control. As a simplistic broadcaster, you seem to be saying that the risk is to the downside at the moment for certain asset classes. Well, yes. And, and you know, in a sort of normal recovery phase, you know, typically you have a sort of pretty impulsive move. Then the fundamentals have to catch up with prices or you see a meaningful correction. And uh, in a propitious environment, it means that growth assets having run ahead, then sort of mark time and you know, and basically move sideways as multiples unwind. Yes. I think in this instance, basically, obviously, the, the, the sort of recovery impulse has been extraordinarily strong, obviously fueled by liquidity uh, and the lack of return on defensive assets, which has, you know, it's led to this Tina kind of environment. There is no alternative to buying equities mm. and credit. And so I think, you know, we were due to enter a period where, things were going to become more uncertain and we were going to see profit taking and uh, the sort of trend sort of breaking for a bit in order to reconfirm ultimately what the direction is, whether basically we enter a bear market or whether we basically this is the first phase of a bull market that's going to um, last for a while. And I don't have any particular opinions about that. I think, you know, our assumption is that basically we're entering period of greater volatility and correction and that you know the debate is between you know what matters is it stock or is it flow 
Um, is it just the sheer amount of liquidity? Because liquidity, the Fed's continuing to pump in $120 billion a month of QE, which is not insubstantial. Other central banks are doing something similar. The Chinese basically, basically slowed the rate of increase in terms of credit availability. It's somewhat different to quantitative easing in their particular case because they tend to be a bit more orthodox. So we happen to believe that particularly when valuations are very elevated, changes at the margin, you know, you need to pay a lot of attention to them. And we've seen a change uh, already in terms of the People's Bank of China has changed policy some months ago. And so the sort of, you know, things have been moving in that direction. And then we've got peak momentum in terms of growth. Okay, that will have been hit in the sort of second quarter of the year. So the growth dynamic is coming off. Yes. And then if you look at inflation, headline inflation prints, you know, over the balance of the year will decline significantly because of base effects. Um, and that, you know, adds something to the picture because it means that uh, it provides a sort of, um, you know, it means that basically the sort of hysteria about inflation, which is being used to justify the reflation trade, you know, gets questioned as a result of that. So I think that's basically what what is going on. And we're just entering this period of just now, I think we're beginning to see with, you know, treasuries rallying sharply, as you referred to earlier, um, and equity markets beginning to wobble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a very small beginning. But anyway, you say at the end, uh, rather neatly, life at the margin, and then more generally, could be about to get a lot tougher. A time to remember the salutary tale of ex-Citigroup CEO Chuck Prince, who notoriously observed back in July 2007, he said the following, when the music stops in terms of liquidity, things will be complicated. But as long as the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance. And then you say, dramatically, he was fired a few months later. Probably wasn't fired because of that. It was probably doing something uh, improprietous or something. <laughs> but uh, the, the point is that without being too forceful, you're saying that just be mindful of, of the changes that have occurred in the last few weeks and last couple of months. Yes, last few months and be mindful of positioning. I mean, Chuck Prince, and I, I, you know, obviously I was being slightly melodramatic about the fact that he was fired, which he was. um, But he walked away with massive options and so forth. So I don't think he's uh, having a particularly unhappy retirement. But he was correct in highlighting the importance of liquidity. He just basically had one dance too many, which obviously had a fairly negative impact on on the value of his options, uh, shall we say. Then we saw, you know, that was 2007, and then we know what happened after that. You know, I'm not saying we're going to get a repeat of that because for a whole host of reasons. So we're sort of, this is more like a correction rather than basically a sort of, you know, a bear market call per se, you know, but but, but nothing goes up or down in a straight line, does it, Lindsay? No, it certainly doesn't. Philip, thanks very much for your fascinating insight. That's Philip Saunders, the co-head of Multi-Asset Growth 91 in London. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.